tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. All right. Good morning, Neighborhood Church. It's good to be with you this morning. Josh and Jocelyn, thank you for bringing God's Word today. You guys are awesome. And I totally, yes. I think that's why I'm in youth ministry is because I believe as I shake out the Bible that God has a heart for teenagers. He has a heart for kids. He has a heart for students and parents and grandparents and nieces and or, um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, please, please do what Eli did. And when your kids are saying, well, maybe God's telling me this, push them back to listen to God. One of the greatest thing my youth pastors ever did for me was when I said, I think God might be calling me into ministry I was kind of afraid that maybe he would make fun of me, but he said, okay, then it sounds like you should listen to God. So again, just to encourage you, um, push your kids, your, your, your grandkids uh, in your life to listen to God. Um, good morning. My name is John White. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here at Neighborhood Church, and um, it's a privilege to be with you. Um, if you have one of those nieces or nephews um, or a teenager in your neighborhood that keeps coming over to your house for some reason, um, please invite them to come to youth group here at Neighborhood Church on Tuesday nights. We meet um, from 7 to 8.30 in the gym, and then we come in here and we have a lesson, and it's just a really great time um, for students to connect with each other and other students, uh, connect with God's church, but ultimately to connect with the creator um, himself. And one of the ways that we do that is we facilitate small group discussion. Whether you're in a life group or you're in a small group or you're in a focus group, um, an age group, um, in youth ministry, we really try to help students connect um, with one another. And the way that we do that is by asking questions. By the time that they get to junior high and high school, they are, for lack of a better term, they're philosophers. They want to know the why behind a lot of things. They're, they're moving from children's ministry where they have a theology, and now they're trying to understand, well, why would God say it that way? Or why would God do that? And so what we try to do is cultivate their hearts and cultivate a spiritual curiosity. And so we ask them some fun questions. Um, and I'm always encouraging our leaders when we're in small group to not preach a sermon again, because I've just kind of shared with the students, right? So I, I'm, what, I, what I encourage them to do is listen to the question in the question that the student is asking. Listen to the heart behind the answer they're giving. And as we listen beyond just the immediate answer, we get to know and discern as best we can where a student might be at with God right now in his life. And even if that student doesn't know God yet, we still believe that God is always working through his Holy Spirit and through his word. And so we ask fun questions like, hey students, what do you think is the first thing that pops into God's mind when he thinks about you? Another fun question we ask, hey, if Jesus was God and John the Baptist was baptizing for a baptism of repentance, why did Jesus get baptized if he had no sins to be baptized for forgiveness for? And then their brains explode. Um, <laughs> I ask students, hey, if Jesus says, what ask, ask for whatever you wish in prayer, and it'll be given unto you, what's the difference between Jesus and Aladdin's genie? Now, we may laugh, but I love to ask these kind of questions, and our leaders love to get in these questions because it allows us to see how students see God, and it allows us to see how students see themselves in relationship to God. 
Does that make sense? All throughout Jesus's ministry, we see him asking questions. He uses stories. He uses parables. He uses mustard seeds. He uses olives from trees. He uses pretty much a fish. He uses anything that he can get his hands on to help dig into the heart of his listeners. All along the way throughout Jesus's life, he's always asking questions in order to raise the hidden motives of the heart so that he can look in them, so that he can test them because it's after the hearts of men and women and students and children that this king is interested in redeeming. Jesus uses questions in many ways to take us deeper, to engage our minds. Jesus asks questions all throughout the gospels to get to know us personally, to raise up our hearts up to his hearts to see what's inside there. And as we've seen throughout the scriptures, Jesus sees sometimes that there's fear. He sees sometimes that there is frustration or false motives or just a little bit of faith. Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in the religious answer, but rather he's interested in the deep held beliefs that affect how we live and walk with God each day. That's what he's interested in. Which is why Jesus, as Pastor Mike preached last week, knew what the rich young ruler's heart was behind the questions that he was asking Jesus. Jesus could see the rich young ruler, what he was really asking that day. And Jesus knew the question to ask the rich young ruler to get down to the buried beliefs, fear, and maybe even sins that he had deep down that were standing in between him and the Lord Jesus himself. In our staff meeting um, this week, we were talking about the rich young ruler and we were kind of imagining like, I wonder, I wonder what questions the rich young ruler had in his mind as he was walking away from Jesus that day. I wonder for the rich young ruler as he went to pray again in his life, if he had the words of Jesus ringing in his ears, leave everything and follow me. And then Pastor Terry said, well, that's the rich young ruler. Hopefully he became a rich old ruler in his life and trusted Jesus eventually after Jesus's death and resurrection. Who knows? But Jesus knew, and he knew exactly what to ask. And so it's very important this morning to remember that Jesus's questions tell us what he's actually interested in. So keep that in mind as we dive into our passage this morning. Ask yourself, what is Jesus really getting at? Why would he be asking this question? And then if we're honest, what is Jesus asking of me this morning as I hear his words? And so my prayer this morning is that as we see Jesus's heart for his people, that we would give him back the authority in our life. That we would hand over those areas that whether we're intentionally doing it or unintentionally, we forge ahead in life without him, but that we would remember to give him those areas. I pray that even this morning we would start building and maybe some of us rebuilding in our lives, Jesus's words today. And so, as Pastor Mike does, would you stand with me as we uh, get ready to dive into our passage? And here's what I want to invite you to do. It may feel weird, but I want you to grab your shoulders like this. Okay? This is going to be a body prayer. This is a good thing. Okay? So, grab your shoulders like this. And this is going to represent everything that you've been carrying on your back this week. Okay? Maybe if you're honest, this morning before church, the ride to church was pretty intense. And you wanted to drop the kids off at 7-Eleven and say, figure it out, right? Okay. Maybe this week you've had some financial issues come up that you weren't ready for, and now your, your bank account's completely dry. 
Maybe there's some news that you got that you are waiting for about maybe some health issues that you thought you were going to get an answer for and it's still not here yet. Maybe there's some things in your life that you are carrying about worry or work that you don't know about. And now I want you to look around the room. Look around the room. You're not the only one carrying something into church this morning. You're not the only one carrying it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to be courageous. I want you to look to the person next to you. And I want you to repeat this to them. We are not alone. God is here with us. He cares for us. And he will help us. Amen. We need to speak that truth over each other because the enemy wants to get us all by ourselves and seclude us. And he wants us to focus in on the lies. And so I'm going to pray in a minute. And when I pray, whenever you feel ready, I want you to let go of your shoulders and I want you to drop them at the feet of Jesus. Whatever you carried in to church this morning, I want you to drop it at the feet of Jesus and just stand there like this saying, Jesus, I'm ready now. I'm ready now to receive whatever you want to give me as I hear from your words this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our good shepherd and our creator. The one who knows our name and knows exactly where we are right now and exactly what we need. Lord Jesus, these are the things that we're carrying on our backs this morning. These are the things that are weighing us down. And so Lord Jesus, right now as best we can, we want to ask you to take these things from us. And as we turn our ears to hear from you this morning, would you help us to pay attention to those things that you pay attention to? Help us to be interested in those things that interest you. And Lord, help us to be honest about those things that come up in our heart this morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you that we are not alone. Thank you that we can worship and follow you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. Um, or you can have Siri open your Bible for you, whatever, whatever works for you. Um, Mark, chapter 12, is where we're going to be uh, hanging out to, um, to this morning. And just to set the scene here in Mark, chapter 12, Jesus is now in the city of Jerusalem. Um, he has entered into the city and he's with his disciples and they're getting closer and closer to celebrating the annual feast of Passover where they remember and they've been remembering for centuries how God rescued them out of the injustice of slavery that they were under in Egypt and how God led them out of that. So Jesus, he's in Jerusalem and he walks straight into the temple. And rather than finding the temple, a place which was the center of Jewish faith and worship, a place of forgiveness and sacrifice, he walks in And it's not a house of prayer for all nations, but rather it's a den of robbers. You see, it's been set up by the religious leaders there. They're taking advantage of the everyday faith of the Jewish people. And they're making them jump through religious rituals every day in order to receive God's forgiveness and God's blessing. They were laying these heavy burdens on the backs of the people in the name of God. And so Jesus literally walks in and he clears out the temple, purifying it of the twisted and broken ways of man in order that those who would come to temple to actually find God would be able to find God. And Jesus walks in and this has a profound effect on the people that are there. And many are astonished because Jesus has such clarity, has such certainty in his teaching 
and he's unapologetic about it, and he's so sure that this is God's way. At the same time, we have a group of religious leaders who were in charge of God's temple, and they also had a response to Jesus. But just as the physical temple needed cleaning out and purifying, it was the heart of mankind that needed to be clean and cleansed and purified, and actually our hearts needed to be rebuilt as well. So again, this is the scene that we're opening up in with Mark chapter 12. Let's start reading with verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So pause for a second. Who's the they that sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus? It's important to know who that they is. And Mark eleven twenty seven 27 tells us that the they is the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the temple. So those who were in charge of running God's house or running God's temple, those who were in charge of interpreting God's laws, and those who were in charge of showing God's people what they needed to do to have a right relationship with God are the ones who send the Pharisees and the Herodians. These guys were the go-to spiritual authorities on all matters of temple, all matters of faith for the Jewish people. So why did they send the Pharisees and the Herodians, though? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Why did they want to trap Jesus in his talk? Why didn't they just go themselves and talk to Jesus? Well, see, that's very important that we pay attention to what happened right before this scene. So look with me, um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. And he, being Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and then went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent, them, sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and they went away. Verse 13. And then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Here we see that the religious leaders forgot who the people of God belonged to. In the same way that the tenants of the vineyard forgot that they weren't the owners of the vineyard, but were chosen to take care of it and the fruit that it produced. We see the religious leaders feared what the people thought of them more than what God thought of them. They were more invested in keeping the people on their side and making sure that the people were following their instructions rather than the son of the vineyard. Here in this parable, 
the religious leaders chose to fight against Jesus, who was the son, who was the representative and the rightful heir of God's vineyard. Instead of listening to the servants that were sent to the owner, they beat them, they threw them out, and they ignored their message. So much so that when the son comes, they brutally kill him, hoping to make off with his inheritance. But God, who's the owner of the vineyard and the owner of God's chosen people, had other plans. That yes, while his beloved son may be rejected and murdered by the twisted hearts of men, actually, that was still part of God's plan all along because it wasn't just part to save the vineyard, but to save the whole world. Jesus is here alluding to what happened all throughout the Old Testament when God would send his prophets and his messengers and his servants to God's chosen people. And he would send them because they start wandering off away from him doing their own thing. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16 sums it up like this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, the temple. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. As we search the scriptures in our lives, let's make sure that the scriptures search our hearts so we don't miss God's message to us. May we not miss out when Jesus comes to us longing to share his words, to share his presence, and to share his way of doing things. You see, as we're in this Mark series of following Jesus together, ultimately that that leads to a life that's lived out right in the open with God, as opposed to a life living in fear and hiding apart from God. Are you beginning to see why the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the temple wanted to trap Jesus? Are you starting to pick up on the seismic activity in the temple that day? Are you starting to feel the tension rising around Jesus and his way of doing things? Well, when I read this, I wonder, well, why then? Why did Jesus choose to teach in parables at the temple? Why did he use this veiled way of speaking to those that were present and worshiping God that day? I mean, he's at temple, he's at church. Why not just be direct about who God is and what God is doing now since you're the son of the vineyard. Like, why not be direct? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to look at what happened right before. So look with me at chapter 11 of Mark, starting in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus with his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed this with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for the people held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus this, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, this time the religious leaders forgot who the temple belonged to. They forgot whose idea the temple was in the first place. The spiritual authority that they had been entrusted with had gone to their heads. 
Instead of seeing Jesus as someone who was helping the people reconnect their lives to God, they feared that they would lose their influence over the people. Instead of saying, amen, we agree with you, Jesus. Hey, you at temple, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. Instead, they were afraid again that those in the temple would stop paying attention to them and start paying attention to the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. So how did the religious leaders respond? Well, they decided to fight Jesus for control. They chose to question Jesus's authority rather than agree with his message. If they could attack Jesus's credentials, then they could discredit his influence and have the people back on their side. But instead of hearing from God through Jesus Christ who was standing right in front of them that day in the temple, they sought to justify their way of living life by questioning Jesus's right to say anything about God at all. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 tells us that early on in Jesus's ministry, he made this statement. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. That when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, these religious rulers were trying to discredit John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth because both of these men did not fit the description of who should be speaking for God. They did not talk like them, they did not dress like them, and they certainly did not act like them. And therefore, the religious rulers missed out on the coming kingdom of God. These people were waiting for the kingdom of God for over 400 years of silence. They were waiting for it, and they missed it. And they also missed the Messiah who was standing right in front of them that day. When in our own lives does Jesus come to us and tell us something we don't want to hear? When do we find ourselves in prayer asking God for help and he ends up showing us something else over here? And we're like, no, 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 Lord, I was talking about this. Why are you bringing this up right now? That's not what I was praying for. How often do we begin to explain away why a certain verse in the Bible doesn't mean what it means? And therefore, I don't really need to pay attention to it. How often do we say sometimes, well, Lord, I don't need to really talk to you about this because it doesn't apply to me. Instead of building our hearts and our hopes and our homes on the rock, we become hearers of the word only without building the word into our lives. We miss Jesus standing right in front of us because we think that perhaps the temple or church is made for me and what I think, rather than realizing that Jesus calls us together as his family to worship him and this crazy thing called the church, and this awkward thing called God's family, in this wonderfully needed extension of the kingdom of heaven that can be present here on earth, just as it is in heaven. May we not be like the religious leaders who were the only spiritual authorities in their life, who challenged everything and everyone that made them feel uncomfortable by pushing them deeper into their hearts and their walk with God. Again, this is the preceding context before Mark 12, 13. We see why the religious leaders wanted to trap Jesus. He was going for their hearts. And this is why the religious leaders sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus instead of them. 
Here's the pent-up environment of the temple that day where the religious leaders are inflamed because Jesus is pointing out things in their life to the point where they want to arrest Jesus. They're incensed by this rabbi from some nowhere town called Nazareth and who keeps pointing the finger at them and he's grouping them with those who persecuted the prophets back in the day. We see a seething rage rising in those who were in charge of God's ways and God's temple. But that rage is kind of put down because they're afraid of what the people might think, right? If they did anything to Jesus. Well, look with me in verse 14 of chapter 12 of Mark. Back to our original thing. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and you don't really care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And here is the reason why the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, handpicked the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus. The Pharisees' lives revolved around the temple and restoring God's kingdom on earth. They were a religious party that had a big presence at church, at the temple. But the Herodians, they were more of a political party who hung out in the temple. The Herodians supported Herod, that's where we get the name from, and Herod's rule and Herod's agenda. And their agenda was less motivated by religion, but more was motivated and concerned with social and political status, keeping the status quo. The Pharisees were the ones that you went to and said, hey, how do I follow God? How do I have a pure and holy life before pure and holy God once I leave the temple? And now depending on how Jesus answers this, he would be trapped, just like Jesus had trapped them about John's baptism. Now they were going to have their revenge. Now they would embarrass Jesus the way that he had embarrassed them. Now they could shut this man up and his message and be off to living the way that they wanted to live all along. So they're asking these questions, but they don't really want to hear from Jesus. If anything, they want to throw a grenade into the temple that day to kick off a religious war between the Herodians and the Pharisees. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they did. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. The Pharisees and Herodians, they got the answer right, saying that they saw Caesar's inscription and his image on it. You see, every denarius had two sides of it. The first side had a picture of Caesar and the other side had a picture of a, a female sitting on a throne. The female sitting on the throne said high priest, and the other side read this, Tiberius Caesar, divine son of Augustus. In effect, this little coin that Jesus is holding up is a portable idol that is promoting pagan ideology inside of God's holy temple. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you despise this tax. You despise this law, and you abhor this coin because it's basically putting Caesar into the divine status that God is. It's making a graven image about God that is not God. But if you're a Herodian, you're getting unsettled because you're trying to keep the peace between Rome and the Jews, and you prize harmony above everything. Thus, Jesus is standing in the trap. Either way he answers, he's either going to equate the domineering pagan presence of Rome with God or he's going to kick off a revolt against God saying we don't need to pay any taxes. 
So what does Jesus say? Verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled. So Jesus rises above this trap laid by the hearts of men. And in the process, he reminds every single person in the temple that day who their creator was and whose likeness they were created after. The religious rulers had forgotten that their very lives belonged to God, not just their money. And they forgot whose image they were supposed to reflect in their life. In one foul, one foul swoop, Jesus tells, it's not just hand something to Caesar, hand something to God, but rather if God's image is stamped on anything, then all of it belongs to God. In the Greek, the word render here means to give back. It means to return back to the source that you received it from. Jesus is calling all of those in the temple that day and he's calling us here at church today to give God back the authority in our lives. If you're a human being who's created in God's image, every human being bears the fingerprints of God. If you have a soul in your body and a heart and you are a human being, you are created in God's likeness and his image and his inscription is written all over your DNA from your head to your toe, from your hair color to your eye color. Every part of you is created in God's image. So if you are created in God's image, then we are to render back to God what is rightfully his. Our very souls, our hearts, our existence. If we only pay attention to the little subtitle on our Bibles that says paying taxes to Caesar, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the heart of Jesus in all of this. You see, the bulk of this story has nothing to do with taxes, but it's the hard-heartedness of those who claim to know God but didn't want anything to do with his son. If we only look at this passage and wonder why, why, why hasn't Pastor John given me the social doctrine of engaging, the Christian engaging with the state? Well, we run the risk of missing the point of all of this, just like the religious leaders missed the point of Jesus walking into the temple that day. They fear that Jesus's words would embarrass them more than believing that Jesus's words could actually purify them. They sought to trap Jesus and turn God's people against him as opposed to handing over everything in their life to the one who had given them their very life. Oh, that we, including myself, might hand over everything to Jesus in our life. Not just those areas that we're overwhelmed in, but the good areas, the bad areas, the ugly areas, the epic areas, the godly bits, the ungodly bits, right? The shiny parts and the embarrassing parts, the parts that you're really proud of and the parts that you wish you could get rid of. Your most benevolent dreams for all of humanity and your most selfish dreams for yourself, including my own. Only we can answer the question, what holds us back from letting Jesus be the authority in our lives? What holds us back from letting Jesus be the authority in our dating lives, in our finances, in our relationships? What holds us back from letting Jesus be the authority in our careers and public life, but also our private lives? What holds us back from letting Jesus be the authority in our families and our conflicts? and our disappointments? What holds us back from letting Jesus be the ultimate spiritual authority in our life? Why are we afraid of letting Jesus come into those areas? Who are we letting influence us in our life? 
more than the one who made us and gave us our lives. What are those areas of our life, if we're honest, are off limits to Jesus? That even if Jesus came up to us and said, hey, let's talk about this, we, we would dismiss it because, well, that, that belongs to me. That I was asking about this, this belongs to me. I don't know where you're at this morning, but perhaps God has sent Jesus to you right now at just the right time just like he did some 2,000 years ago. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us this, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the whole wide world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's who walked into the temple this morning. That's whose house we walked into today. So in closing, family, when it comes to following Jesus together, we must give Jesus back the authority in every area of our life. When we come to Jesus with our questions, he's not trying to get you. He's trying to deepen his reign and his rule and his love and his freedom and his redemption in your life by calling us deeper into the hidden places of our hearts because he knows us better than anyone does. He created us. Let's not be like the religious rulers that day who feared what others thought more than fearing what God thinks. May we seek to listen to Jesus and build our life on his words as the wise one who builds their house on the rock. Because I tell you what, the wind's gonna come. The rain is gonna come. May we humble ourselves before Jesus, removing ourselves from being the central authority in our life and letting him be it. Letting him be the go-to authority that we go to first and foremost. And if we forget to go first and foremost, then we come third, fourth, and we say, God, that's right, I need you to be my go-to authority. May we render back to him everything in our lives in order to see his power, to see his healing and his provision in those areas of our lives. May we not be so concerned with the way we're doing things that we miss out on the son of God who might be standing right in front of us today. Let's pray. as we move into prayer, ask yourself, what is the loudest authority in my life right now other than you, Jesus? What is the loudest authority in your life right now other than Jesus? Whose image have you been bearing lately? Has it been one of your own creation? Or has it been one given to you by your creator? Wherever you find yourself this morning, what has Jesus been pointing out to your heart that he wants you and him to pay attention to as you listen to his words?
maybe for some of you, Jesus is asking you to place your trust in his authority in your life for the very first time. And if you're hearing Jesus say that to you this morning, you can answer him back by simply praying in your heart with me right now. Lord Jesus, I know that I need a savior and I cannot give myself purpose or significance or forgiveness. I believe that you are who you say you are, the son of God and not just a man. I've tried being the authority in my life and I surrender to you to be the ultimate authority in my life starting today. I believe and trust that you laid down your life for me and are the only one who can connect me back to the God of the universe who made me in his image. So right now I invite you into my life to lead me, to guide me and redeem me. I ask you to forgive my sins and I accept you as my Lord and Savior. So as this next song plays, allow God's spirit to search your heart. I invite you to be honest with your creator because he's the only one that can see your heart and understand it better than you can. Because he made you. And he's waiting right now to meet with you. Nothing you say and nothing in your heart is gonna shock him, nothing's gonna surprise him, and nothing in your life is gonna make him walk away from you. Jesus loves you enough to make you in his own image. So take this time to render back to Jesus, yourself, your soul, your life. Lord Jesus, we give you our hearts and we give you our souls. Help us to live for you alone, with every breath that we take and every moment that we are awake, Lord, have your ways in us.